already at a few different ways in which the Psalms instruct us or which the Psalms uh, give us permission to behave or to act or to think or to feel. We've looked at how the Psalms give us permission to be messily honest. That was the phrase that I used in the introduction. We've looked at how the Psalms speak about blessing, what true blessing actually looks like. We've looked at how they call us to mission. And we've looked at what it looks like when you complain in the, uh, in the mode or in the format of the Psalms, what it looks like to lament uh, through the Psalms. And today we are going to look at Jesus in the Psalms, which is an interesting topic because, of course, the Psalms generally were written about a thousand years before Jesus came, before Jesus was born. And so how then do the Psalms factor in? So I'm glad you asked. Because uh, that's what we're going to be getting into today. Uh, but I want to open up in prayer. So bow with me. God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for Jesus. For his sacrifice for us. For his resurrection and victory over sin. Help us to respond well, God. Help us to live in that truth. Help, help us to live lives that are affected, that every decision, that everything that we do, God, is colored by our gratitude and our response to what you have done for us on the cross and what you have done for us in your resurrection. And as we look for you in the Old Testament, as we look for you in the Psalms, God, open our eyes to where we can find you, to how you've been working through history uh, long before 2,000 years ago, even, God, in your name. Amen. So I thought to start off uh, maybe something about me. Uh, I'm a movies guy. I like a good movie. I enjoy uh, watching films. And, and I especially love a good twist ending. It's one of my favorite things in movies. I, when you watch something and then at the end of the movie in that last act, new information drops or a new character is revealed or something happens, a new perspective hits and everything changes. Actually, years ago, I made a list of, of some of my top movies. And when I was thinking about that list... I realized that many of them, almost all of them, in fact, have some form of a twist ending. So apparently that's something that I really, really uh, enjoy. Something that comes up at the end, takes you by surprise, sends things in a direction that you didn't expect. Uh, and a great twist ending is a thing of beauty. But let's be clear, not all twists are good twists or satisfying twists. There are some movies out there that have twist endings that are bad, they're lazy, they're, they're, they're boring. And, and here's my simple, personal distinction between what makes a good twist ending and what makes a bad twist ending. So a bad twist ending discards everything that came before it. Like you're watching something and the person wakes up and oh, it was all a dream. None of it ever happened. And it basically says you watched the first hour and a half of this for nothing. You shouldn't have been paying attention. None of it mattered. A good twist ending enhances everything that came before it. A good twist ending that happens, everything becomes more significant. Lines of dialogue become more meaningful or scenes suddenly start to click into place in a way that you didn't understand the first time through or relationships change or something that you thought meant this, it actually meant something else, but it was all important. It was all building and intentional and working towards something. Uh, when I was in Bible college, I didn't own a vehicle at that time. I was fresh out of high school. I borrowed one uh, from my parents to get around. And, and we had a big family. I had five siblings. And so our third vehicle, 
The vehicle that my parents didn't drive on a daily basis, the vehicle I got for college was a 15-passenger van, just like the van we have here at church. And so every once in a while, we would decide to go see a movie. And so, you know, me and a couple of friends, would, we would go and we would ask around dorm, who wants to go see a movie, who wants to go see a movie? We'd keep on asking until this thing was full. And so me and my 14 closest friends would pile in and head into Winnipeg to Silver City or wherever we were headed. Well, let's be honest, it was probably the old cheap seats at McGilvery there because you could get into a movie on Tuesdays for $3.50. And we were college students. So we would go into this van, we would go to the movie theater, and one time I, very, I vividly remember going to see the movie The Prestige. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's got Hugh Jackman. It's got Christian Bale in it. And they play uh, dueling Victorian-era magicians. They are both trying to become the best magician, the most famous magician. Uh, And magicians in this time are celebrities. And they start out as friends, or at least acquaintances. But as things get more heated and the rivalry becomes more intense, well, who, who here has seen The Prestige? I see a few hands. I won't spoil anything for the rest of you, but, but let's say they go to some pretty extraordinary lengths to get to the top of the magic industry, and at the end of the movie, in the final minutes, bam, a gigantic twist is revealed. There are actually a few twists in the movie. It's a very twisty movie, but, but there's a big one at the end, and if the movie hadn't been made well, it might have come across as cheap, but the filmmakers do such a good job, they drop all these little breadcrumbs and hints throughout these little ideas or moments that sort of sneak in past your defenses. And when the twist comes, the relevance of all these things that you didn't totally get explodes. And all of a sudden, it completely changes the way that you think about the first part of the film. I distinctly remember walking out of the theater and feeling this intense desire just to turn around and to walk right back in and to watch the second showing because everything had changed. I didn't because I was a college student and 350 was 350. But for days after, I would be sitting somewhere and doing something and I would suddenly go, oh my goodness, as another scene or moment or bit of foreshadowing sort of clicked into place in my head. Some of you might already know where I'm going with this. But for first century Jews, the Jews around Jesus' time, the Psalms... As we've said before, it was like their hymn book. It was like their song book. They knew these psalms like we know praise and worship songs or the hymnal today. When I uh, have the opportunity to speak at the Heritage, I go there sometimes for a Sunday morning or for a Tuesday evening devotional. It's always amazing to me. We sit down and we say, does anybody have a favorite that they'd like to sing? And someone says, 28. And there's kind of this murmur of approval from the group and the piano player starts going and everybody starts singing. And for most of them, I'm sure, they wouldn't even have to open up that little red hymnal. You say 28, they know exactly what they're doing, and they go. And so the Israelites, especially the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they knew this stuff like that. They knew it backwards and forwards. The language of the Psalms was in their hearts. And in the Psalms, there are several that speak about a coming Messiah. We don't think often about the Psalms as being a prophetic book. It's a, it's a book of poetry, but there are psalms that point towards, that hint at, and that sometimes even speak fairly directly about a coming Messiah that's going to come and liberate people. And so as the Jews would sing these psalms, they would anticipate this Messiah. For a thousand years, they sang these songs, and they would wait, and they would wonder about how this would all play out. And, and I think we can understand a bit about what they're thinking when we look at the way that some people treat 
or look at or pour over the book of Revelation, right? It's been about 2,000 years since the book of Revelation was written. And people come up with all sorts of complex theories about what might be coming up, about what these heads and these scrolls and this woman and these things represent. And the Pharisees were like that with these messianic psalms. Based off of these psalms and other prophetic scripture, they had developed complex theologies and ideas about exactly who this Messiah was going to be and what he was going to look like. It's a little bit like me two-thirds of the way through the movie The Prestige. I don't know if any of you are like this. You watch a movie and you can tell, you can see that there's a reveal coming and you're just desperately trying to figure out what the ending is going to be before you get there. So you develop these elaborate theories or ideas about what could be happening, who the good guy or the bad guy is or what the missing clue is. But the Pharisees were digging through these psalms looking for clues and a hugely important psalm to the Pharisees was Psalm 110 which is often called uh, the crown jewel of the Psalms. It's considered by a lot of commentators and theologians to be the most important or significant psalm in the Bible and certainly the most important or significant psalm that speaks about Jesus. If you ever want to do a deep dive on a psalm, if you ever want to look into one kind of deeply, this is a great one to look into. There's a ton of resources available. You type Psalm 110 into Google, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of stuff. A lot of people have thought a lot about this psalm. Uh, Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, said this about it. He said, This beautiful psalm, therefore, is the very core and quintessence of the whole Scripture. No other psalm prophesies as abundantly and completely about Christ. And even before Jesus came, to the Pharisees, before Jesus showed up, this psalm looked like it was speaking about their coming Messiah. So I want to take a little bit of time to break this down for you. I actually thought a bit about breaking this into two sermons because there's so much going on uh, in Psalm 110. But we're going to break it down sort of briefly and then we're going to keep on moving through. It's, it's a short psalm. It's just seven verses. And one of the most interesting things to me is that when you look at this psalm, when you read it through the first time, uh, it doesn't actually look like much. It, it doesn't seem, you don't read it and go, oh yes, this is the crown jewel of Psalms for sure. But as you dig into it, and as you start thinking about David writing this thing a thousand years before Christ came, uh, it starts to become more and more interesting. So this is what that psalm says. You can turn there if you want. We'll spend a bit of time here. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head up high. So right away, things get interesting here. David, the king of Israel, wrote this psalm, and he starts off by saying, The Lord said to my Lord. So the first Lord here is Yahweh. A lot of your Bibles are going to capitalize that. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a high name for God. God the Father. And the second Lord here is Adonai, or Master. So, whatever this psalm is about, it's not about David. David is talking about 
a Lord that is above him, right? Most of the Psalms that David writes are about himself. God, you have promised to do this to me. God, I need this from you. God, this is what I'm doing. God, this is the situation that I'm in. But here, he's writing about someone else. And even more tellingly, David is writing about a Lord that's above him. Well, he's the king of Israel. So who could that be? He's already listed God. Who could this Lord be? Well, the Pharisees looked at this, and they realized pretty quickly that this was a prophetic psalm that David, under the inspiration of God, was writing about the Messiah, their deliverer who was to come. And so this psalm offers really important insight and was among the prophetic scriptures that were studied really, really carefully by first century Jews to try and figure out who this Messiah was going to be, what he was going to look like. And what we see in this psalm is a, is a mashup of the two sort of most important roles in Jewish culture, a king and a priest. It's a combination of these two things. So David continues in the psalm like this. This is the Lord Yahweh speaking to David's Adonai, his master. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. So it's this kingly imagery. God, Yahweh, is calling for this master to rule, to assemble troops, troops which will come willingly. This isn't a conscripted army of forced fighters. This is a willing army of volunteers, willing on the day of battle. They will come like dew. It's all this battle imagery. God is going to extend the scepter and lead this Lord to total dominance. He is a king that is going to conquer. He is in the midst of his enemies, and yet God is going to make them a footstool. So the first image that we get of this Messiah, this Lord that David is referring to, is a ruling king. And then we have uh, this idea of a priest show up. So it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, I don't know if any of you have ever wondered or looked into or heard of Melchizedek. He doesn't show up too often in Scripture, but it's important every time he does. He is a bit of a strange character in the Bible. He's only mentioned in three places. So Psalm 110 is one of them. This is one of his mentions. And his actual appearance, his, his sort of appearance in the historical narrative, comes in Genesis. And he's only around for three verses. He, he sort of pops out of nowhere in Genesis 14, verses 18. Uh, this is uh, the story that's happening here. Abram, uh, Lot was, was taken away by these four kings, by the king of Sodom. And Abram is coming with a small, with a small group of forces to uh, take over those kings, rescue Lot from these people that he's been captured by. And he's successfully done this. So he's defeated uh, the people who captured Lot. He's taking Lot back with him. He's on his way. And out of nowhere, it says, I'm going to change my page here. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram to the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram, after receiving this blessing, he tithes. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of battle. That's his entire appearance in the book. He gets mentioned there. He gets mentioned in Psalm 110. And then, again, his probably his most prominent mention is in Hebrews 
7, the author of Hebrews, probably inspired by Psalm 110, uses Melchizedek to parallel with Jesus to show how Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. So there's a lot of debate out there about who exactly this guy is. He just kind of shows up. So some people think that he was just a good king priest, that he was a historical figure uh, with no other real significance except for sort of this, this encounter. But he was a, a real person who lived in history, just a kind of a random guy. Uh, some people believe that he was Shem. This is an interesting theory out there. Some people believe that he was Shem, the son of Noah. If you look at the genealogies, apparently there's overlap between the life of Shem and uh, the life of Abram. And so people believe that maybe this is a very old Shem who had now taken on this priestly role. And people like that because Shem is, of course, the father of all Israel. That's where the, uh, the idea of the Israel people being uh, Semites or Semitic people, that's from Shem. So, so this, that, that fits nicely in the narrative, this idea that maybe the father of all Israel was this high priest. Uh, and some people believe that he's what's called uh, theophany, which is an appearance of God, theo for God, and uh, it's, uh, the phony is, is an appearance, or you see it. And so this idea that this was actually a projection of God, that in some way it was Jesus himself appearing to Abram at this time. So there's a lot of theories about this Melchizedek character. But the important thing is this. The significance is that he is the first priest, that he is the king of peace, and that he's outside of the normal order. In, in Israel, priests were from the tribe of Levi. It was a genetic thing. It was a hereditary thing. If your dad was a priest, you were going to be a priest, and it worked down. Melchizedek doesn't fit into that system. He's a part of something bigger. And so he's a universal priest. He's for everyone. He is, a, he is the first priest. He is the highest. And, and he is blessing the Most High God here. So that's kind of why Hebrews grabs this guy and why Psalms does. But, but interesting person. Um, and when we look at the Pharisees looking at this text and seeing these sort of parallel images of this priest and this king and, and trying to figure out what this could look like, well, you can imagine that they would have thought back to the priests and the kings that they've had in their past, people like David, and all this conquering and battle imagery that shows up in Psalm 110. They would have gone, well, clearly this is going to be somebody who's going to come, and he's going to conquer physically, and he's going to deliver us physically. He's going to be a nationalistic thing. It's going to be a David and Goliath sort of thing. Well, And their oppression under Rome, many Pharisees will have seen strong connection between Egypt. They will have looked and gone, this is just like Egypt, and we need a Moses. We need somebody to come and physically deliver us from this place. Moses was traditionally considered to be a Melchizedekian priest. That's, he's sort of categorized that way by the Jewish people. So they're looking for another David or another Moses to show up. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus doesn't look anything like what they were expecting. He doesn't seem at all interested in overthrowing the Romans. And, and worse than that, the leaders of the Jewish people, those who feel that they've been faithful and watchful and pious and upright, over and over again, they're being made uh, to look foolish and backwards by Jesus. Jesus is constantly taking long-held beliefs about the way that things work, about religion, about social justice, about scriptural law, and turning these things on their head. Now, that doesn't mean the scriptures were wrong, but it means that the Pharisees' interpretations of the scriptures were wrong. Um, recently, uh, Andy Stanley, some of you will know Andy Stanley, we did a Bible, uh, we did a Sunday school series uh, from him a couple of months back. Uh, he's attracted some attention 
uh, because he made some comments that sounded like Christians should separate themselves. He used the words unhitch themselves uh, from the Old Testament. Now, I haven't read uh, his book, uh, and from some of what I've heard in the aftermath, I don't think that's actually what he was getting at. He wasn't suggesting that we get rid of the Old Testament. His words were sort of exaggerated or taken out of context. But there are lots of people who think that way, who think the Old Testament is old news. It's not relevant anymore. And, and that's not the case. In fact, after God came down to earth and showed us the visible image of the invisible God through Jesus, the Old Testament has never been more relevant. And we can clearly see this through the respect that the New Testament writers give the Old Testament, and especially Psalm 110, which gets quoted 33 separate times in the New Testament. Psalm 110 comes up as, as, as being quoted to talk about who the Messiah is and who Jesus was and what he came to do. Several times by Jesus himself. So uh, in Matthew 22, there's this really cool passage where Jesus is cornered uh, by authorities on Jewish law, and they ask him a series of three questions that are designed to trip him up, to get him to say something conviction-worthy so they can lock him up. They ask him about imperial tax. Should we be paying taxes to Caesar? And according to their understanding of Psalm 110, this sort of conquering, nationalistic Messiah who is going to come and free them from their oppressors, no so-called Messiah was ever going to consider bowing the knee. And then Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they have no idea what to do with that. They're confounded by it. They break off into a huddle and try and figure out what's next. And the Sadducees come in and they've got a question now and they're going to trip Jesus up. And they say, there's this woman and she's been married seven times. She was married to a brother. The brother died. She got married again and she kind of got passed all the way down this line of brothers. So in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? They're trying to get him to say something incriminating about the resurrection. The Sadducees had some very... Uh, strong ideas about the resurrected body after death, what heaven was going to be like, and so they're trying to trip Jesus up. And Jesus completely sidesteps that one as well with his answer. And then we come to uh, this sort of third question where the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together and they say, okay, well, what's this? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus. They're desperately trying to incriminate him somehow. This is shortly before, this is in the week before his death. So they're working really hard to create a case against Jesus. What's the greatest commandment in the law, they ask him. And he says, and you know this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. But then, this is what I'm getting at here, Jesus turns the tables on them, and he asks them a question. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And this is an easy answer for the Pharisees. It's a layup. And they say, he's David's son. Everybody knows this. This is a, a, a Sunday school answer. And then Jesus says, then how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 now, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one asked him any more questions. So, again, there's a whole sermon in that passage, but the one thing I want to point out is that it's never called into question by the Pharisees or by Jesus, that Psalm 110 is a prophetic passage that's speaking about the Messiah. It's like the only thing they can agree on is that this passage was written a thousand years ago and is speaking clearly about who Jesus came to be. 
Four chapters later in Matthew, when Jesus is on trial, he uses Psalm 110 language again. The high priest is trying to get Jesus to confess, saying, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus responds, saying, you have said so, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, and that's Daniel prophetic language, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So we're coming back to that Psalm 110 language again. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, the crowds answered. So again, we see Jesus and his captors both familiar in accepting this passage as prophetic about the Messiah. So I could do this again and again and again throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, but I wanted to pick just this one psalm to prove my point. Jesus considered the psalms to be a legitimate expression of his nature and his character. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, right? But the, the Pharisees missed it because they were so focused on their own interpretation of Scripture that Jesus couldn't get through to them. They expected a nationalistic Messiah. They expected a geographic conquering. They expected an earthly priest king like David or Moses who would rule a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. They expected physical deliverance. But Jesus says, those words were about me. You just didn't understand them properly. Everything was there in front of you, but you missed it. The Pharisees missed the, what I'm going to call the twist ending. Because by my simple definition at the beginning of this sermon, at least, Jesus, we could call the ultimate twist ending. Not a bad twist ending that discards the Old Testament, but a twist ending, something that comes and enhances it. Uh, this is all-important God-breathed scripture, Jesus says, but I'm going to give you a new set of lenses to look at it. I'm going to give you a new perspective and a new understanding that's going to change and clarify everything that came before me. What you thought was going to be a physical deliverance is actually a spiritual deliverance. What you thought was going to be for Israel is actually for the whole world. What you thought was going to be an earthly victory is actually a victory over death itself. There's this Amazing moment in Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples. And he says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that's basically the whole Old Testament. Then, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Well, these guys knew the scriptures, backwards and forwards. But it took Jesus to open up their minds so that they could really understand them, so that they could actually see. It took this new set of lenses, this new revelation to act as the key that they needed to reinterpret and re-understand these verses they knew so well. And in the New Testament, we see writers constantly coming back to Old Testament Scripture and being amazed over and over again at Jesus showing up. In these familiar passages, new things keep clicking into place. John is wrapping his head around this idea when inspired by God, he starts off his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything in Scripture, John is saying, points to Jesus. 
This isn't about one verse here or there. This isn't about cherry-picking a specific psalm or phrase or idea to apply to Jesus. The New Testament writers saw Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament to the point where some of the psalms that they quote, if you go back and look at the original context, it's just a normal psalm. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David where he's talking about himself and his own hope in God. There's nothing that you would ever read it as and go, oh, this is clearly a messianic psalm. David's talking about himself. But then Peter on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, he delivers a sermon and he says, David said this about Jesus. This is about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. David was talking about himself. But Peter says that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, whether he understood it or not in that moment, he was a prophet who saw what was to come. And you can just sense when you see these Old Testament references in Scripture, the excitement and the energy coming off of the writers as they go back to these things that they've read a thousand times before and their understanding of it is completely changed. And they see Jesus in this thing. And new life has been breathed into it. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians says that no matter how many promises God has made, and he's talking here about the promises of the Old Testament, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen and yes is spoken by us to the glory of God. Christ is the yes to every question, to every promise in the Old Testament. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, The Case for the Psalms, Why They Are Essential, he says this, Psalms form the great epic poem of the creator and covenant God who will at last visit and redeem his people and with them his whole creation. The entirety of the Psalms, every Psalm is building towards Jesus. Jesus in the Psalms is not about a couple of Psalms here or there that you can point to looking at, maybe this was talking about the Messiah. Jesus is the answer to every Psalm. Jesus is the answer to every promise fulfilled, to every struggle he has conquered in his victory. Um, I've talked before, I think, from this pulpit about Sebastian's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I just, I love, I love this thing. I love it because every single story that it says throughout the entire Old Testament and New, every single one points to Jesus. The people are scattered at the Tower of Babel, and it finishes. People could never reach up to heaven, and so heaven would have to come down to them, and one day it would. We read the story of Abraham and Isaac, and it finishes, many years later, another son would climb another hill with wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what the father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son that he loved, the Lamb of God. David defeats Goliath, and the story ends. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. The takeaway this morning is simple. We've gone through a lot of stuff. But this is what I want you to take away. When we read our Bibles, when you look at Scripture, look for Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He is the image 
of an invisible God. The Bible tells us clearly that if we want to understand the character of God, if we want to understand who God is and what he is saying to us, look at Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He is the perfecter of our faith. In him is every yes and amen to the questions of the Old Testament, to the questions in our lives. He is priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is conquering king at the right hand of God. And when we read the Psalms, when we read Scripture at all, we must always read with Jesus in mind. So no matter where we are in Scripture, we should always be asking three basic prayerful questions. How does this point to Jesus? How does Jesus reveal his authority over and through this? How can I follow Jesus in light of this? Every piece of scripture should point us towards those questions, should be read through that lens. The law lays the foundation for him. The historical books tell of Israel's preparation for him. The poetry desires him and anticipates him. The prophecies foretell him. The gospels show him living. Acts show him preached. The epistles, the letters from Paul and other writers interpret him. And Revelation shows the completion of his work. The Bible is God-breathed scripture. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. And the Bible is only useful to us as long as it is pointing us towards the true word. Uh, Jesus says in the book of John, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Eternal life is not in the Bible or in our interpretation of it. It is in Jesus, the living God. The Pharisees got caught up in their own ideas, their own opinions about Scripture. What was God going to look like? How is he going to behave? How would he fulfill prophecy? Who is in? Who is out? Who deserved grace? Who was right? Who was wrong? And they may have been well-intentioned. In fact, I believe many of them were probably well-intentioned, but they missed it. So let's take that history seriously. Let's be careful not to get so tied up in the trees, in the little debates, in the little questions of the gospel of Scripture that we miss the forest, that we miss what's important. In Jesus, we have the key that unlocks every scriptural door. So let him always be at the center of your reading and processing the Psalms and the Bible. Amen.